you're at the nursery or kids club, you might even be as excited as Connor. You're excused. Otherwise, grab a Bible and turn it to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. My guess is that at this point, we all have our favorite internet videos. You know the ones I'm talking about, the one that you can watch that makes you laugh every single time? The one that makes you a little misty-eyed every time it shows up? The one that makes you think that you come back to? Every time I think about internet videos, I, I have those categories in mind. I could point them out to you. One of my most favorites, however, comes from the Christian comedian Michael Jr. I wanted to show it to you, but the video clip lasts too long. It wasn't worth giving you the whole clip, but I would encourage you to watch it later. The clip is called Know Your Why. In it, Michael Jr., this comedian, is doing what he does. In the middle of a comedic routine, he starts asking the questions, asking questions to the audience, and in his words, he lets comedy happen. In this particular clip, he comes across a man who's a musical instructor at a school. So Michael asks him, can you sing for us? And the man begins to sing Amazing Grace. If you've seen the clip, he's a gifted singer. Michael compliments him on his singing and then asks him, could you sing it again? But this time, could you sing it like, and then he gives him a scenario. Could you sing it like your aunt just died? Like you got shot when you were a kid. Like you're going through some really hard times. You know, could you give me the hood version? And if you've watched the video, the man stands up and he takes it to a whole nother level. I mean, it is extraordinary the way this man changes what at first was a very normal version of the hymn to this very powerful, soul-felt, deep, rich thing. He then comes back and explains that the why you do something is often more significant than the what that you do. The man saying it one way, because he's just doing it, but his why informed his what. And so when his why come into, came into play, it brought so much more passion and feeling to what he was doing. And he sounded far differently. I love that video because it reminds me to grasp my why. What am I doing? But more importantly, why am I doing it? And does what I do align with my why? Friends, this morning as we carry into this fourth week in our series in evangelism, having talked about the content of evangelism and the challenge of evangelism, the concern for evangelism, we're now into the catalyst for evangelism, which prompts us to consider our why. Why are we called to be evangelical? What is our why in those moments? What props us in a moment to want to share the gospel? What is our motivation? What is our why? That's going to be our aim this morning. So as we head that direction, let's take a moment just to ask the Father to bless our time together. Gracious Father, we literally gather together in the name of Jesus Christ because He has saved our souls. Father, we glory in the salvation that You've granted us through Your Son. 
Father, it is rich beyond all measure. Something we could never merit on our own. So Father, we worship You for that. Father, this morning as we dig into Your Word, we ask that You would open up the eyes of our hearts that we might receive understanding, we might receive insight, that You might move in our lives, and that You might use Your Word to teach us, to grow us, and to mature us that we might more fully understand the gospel, that we might more fully understand our salvation, and that you might stir in us a why. That you might stir in us a greater desire to share your truth. Father, we trust that you are at work in our lives. Use this time for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Beloved, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Do the work of an evangelist. It's a blanket statement. It's a a command. It's, It's a calling. Do the work of an evangelist. If you take it that God's word is inspired, and we do, and you take it that God's word is authoritative, and we do, we are to understand that as a command written to us. Do the work of an evangelist. Mark 16, Jesus says, go into the world and preach the good news. Again, if we take the word as inspired, we take it as authoritative, we take it as a command to us, to all of us. So when you're standing in your front yard cleaning out your flower beds and your neighbor stops by to ask if he can borrow a tool, or you're standing at Starbucks and your barista takes your order and then stands there looking at you and asking about your day, Or you take your family to Chili's and your waiter keeps stopping by to check in with you. Or your son's getting a haircut and you interacting with the stylist. These are all of the situations that happen in you and in your life and in my life. They happen to us regularly. So how is it that in those moments we're called to be, to step up? How is it in those moments we're called to gain some courage? How is it in those moments do we start an awkward conversation? That's what we're aimed at this morning. So if you're in 2 Corinthians, that's what we're going to look at in chapter 5. As you know, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians. It may actually be his fourth or his fifth letter. He mentions two others. We don't have them. So Paul is working in 2 Corinthians to write to the Corinthian church. And if you read the whole book in a setting, and you really should do that at some point. You really ought to take on that, that habit of reading whole books in a setting. 
But if you were to read through the whole book of 2 Corinthians, one of the themes that you would draw from it, one of the overwhelming things you would grab is that not only is he building up the church in the gospel, but he's building them up in gospel proliferation. That is evangelism. That they would understand that they've been given something that they might give it away. I'll give you a couple of quick snapshots before chapter 5. In chapter 2, Paul writes that we are the aroma of Christ, a fragrance of life to those who are parents perishing. He gives you this picture that when you walk where you walk, wherever it is you go, you should smell like Jesus. So that when you walk into the room, people should go, is that Jesus? And, and I'm not talking about a stink. I'm talking about a, a presence that is attractive and compelling. I often say one of my most favorite things about Gunny Todd, and I have a lot of them, is that Gunny wore my mother's perfume. And so when Gunny would walk by me, I knew it. Didn't have to, I could be praying Gunny could walk in the room and be like, Gunny's here. <laughs> That's what supposed to happen with believers and Jesus. We have the aroma of Christ about us. In chapter 3, Paul writes that we're not sufficient for the spreading of the gospel. That we're actually not up for the task. But that we are made sufficient. That somehow Christ does a work in us. That he'd take this, that which is insufficient and he would make you sufficient that Christ might be manifested in you that you might be a minister of the new covenant it's a beautiful picture of the reality that you're not up for the task but he calls you for it equips you for it and he's sufficient for it chapter 4 Paul writes we don't proclaim ourselves but we proclaim Jesus as Lord And it goes on to talk about how as we suffer, Jesus' life is manifested in us. That when people watch our lives as we suffer, they would watch Christ's sufferings. It's a picture that people would always see Jesus in our lives. Friends, thematically, 2 Corinthians is building to show us that one of the major implications of the gospel is that we are saved by Christ, that we might look like Christ, that we might proclaim Christ. And you will not find that more clear than what we'll see in chapter 5. Paul's laid this foundation. He sets us up. We're jumping into chapter 5, starting in verse 14. We're taking it a little slow on our way in. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. If you dig into this, I spent a lot of time tearing apart this sentence grammatically this week. The construction of this sentence clarifies for us that this is Christ's love for him. It's important that we recognize that this is the love of Jesus for Paul, that Jesus loves Paul so much, Paul becomes convinced of us that this love controls us. 
NIV 84, still my favorite translation, says, Christ's love compels us. It's this idea that the world would, or that this love of Jesus that sees you, that cleanses you, that forgives you, that adopts you, that every spiritual blessing that we talked about last week, that everything that you have in Christ, that all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus, that the love of Jesus has for you would compel you. If you do a word study on that word, whether you translate it control or compel, it's an interesting word because the word actually means to hold something together. Like if you wanted to drink up, drink out of a plastic cup that had somehow shattered and you wanted to kind of hold the cup together in such a way that it could hold water and still drink with it. That's kind of the word picture you see. The love of Christ compels us. Beloved, do you realize what we have in Jesus? Because I think, I think I take it for granted. I think I move past it too quickly. I think I don't realize all that I have in Jesus. Lest it compel me. For the love of Christ compels us. Why? Pauline's into that. Because we have concluded this. Paul doesn't come to that love solely on its own basis. Paul actually comes to a conclusion. He comes to an understanding that having spent time studying and reading and processing, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Why does Jesus' love compel us? Friends, Paul concludes by pointing to the sacrificial death of Jesus. He points to the sacrificial death of Jesus and he makes two observations, both of which I think we take for granted. And I'll be fair to you. Both of which I take for granted. You can make your own determination later. Here's the first. When Paul writes, one died for all, Therefore, all have died. He's making an extraordinary statement that we are apt to miss. Because what Paul is pointing to here is a doctrine. And it's a doctrine that is easy to glaze over, but the idea of it is called the doctrine of the union with Christ. It is actually the understanding that when you come to faith in Jesus, when you come to salvation in Jesus Christ, you actually become one with Jesus. One died for all, therefore all died. Because Jesus died, you died. That's his conclusion. Because Jesus died, having believed in him, 
you die. We actually see this all over the New Testament. You see it in Romans 6. You were buried with Christ. You were raised with Christ. You see in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. So you start to see this argument laid out all through the scriptures that what happens to Jesus because you've believed in him happens to you. Jesus died, therefore you died. Jesus was buried, therefore you were buried. Jesus was raised, therefore you've been raised. Jesus was resurrected, therefore you have new life. This idea of union with Christ is on full display in the New Testament. You see in passages that say in Christ, with Christ, and even Christ in us. What I want you to see from that is to understand that as believers in Christ, that you've been inseparably tied to Jesus. It's one of the very, very main reasons why we would hold to the reality that having been saved, having been saved by Jesus, you you cannot lose your salvation. Why? Because you've become one. You're united with him. You've been blended together. You and Jesus are now together always. And the reality of this doctrine is that it's not a metaphor, like a philosophy that you can carry. I mean, if you consider that you were united with Christ always, you need to consider that there's some very real and very tangible, and by that I mean very spiritual and very physical realities to that union. What do I mean by that? Consider this. You are united with Christ in your present possession of salvation. You are saved now because of what Jesus did for you then. But why does that work? Because you are united with Christ in his past already accomplished work. And you're united with Christ in your future work he's going to complete in you through the process of sanctification, through your glorification. That in Christ you have every spiritual blessing. Beloved, they don't leave you. Why? Because you're united with Christ. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He has a real spiritual presence in you. It's why Paul writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And yet, he also has a physical presence with you, in you. As in you're being transformed by the Holy Spirit from one degree of glory to another. That's the argument he makes in chapter 3. So if you were to think about that, one degree of glory, old Ben, to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, what am I being morphed into? What am I being changed into? What am I progressively becoming more and more like as I become in some essence less Ben and more... Jesus. 
Less than glory, 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 glory. Jesus. We are all in the process of that. If you believed in Jesus five minutes ago, you've been fully justified by his grace. You've been transferred from one degree of glory to the next. And yet as you grow and mature and pursue obedience, which is a great means of sanctification, you move and move and move. The argument of second Corinthians 3 is that you do that, not by effort, but by beholding Jesus, by being enthralled by Jesus, by considering Jesus, by loving Jesus. You are changed. So what's my physical argument? Jesus is at work in you, making you more like him. And that just as God the Father said God the Son to incarnate himself into the world, Jesus would say, as the Father has sent me, so I've sent you. And what do you do? You incarnate Jesus to the world. That's the job of a believer. That's our mission. That's the role we've been given. Church, don't believe that the idea that Christ came and died for you so you could have peace and happiness and joy and pay your bills and live a normal human life. That's a lie. It's a lie that too many of us believe. If Jesus is just supposed to give me peace as I deal with my stress. Oh, beloved, he will. But he has more for you than that. Jesus actually dies to give you meaning and purpose and true life. He sends you out to be incarnated like him so that you might literally be his presence. So that when you walk into the grocery store, the presence of Christ enters the grocery store. When you talk to your sister on the phone, the presence of Christ is on the phone. And when you sit down with a grieving friend, the presence of Christ is present in the grieving friend. But that's the aroma of Christ. That's Christ's presence being manifested through you. That's the presence of Christ being present. That's you being united with Christ to come to this understanding that everywhere you go, you take him with you. Every place you're at, he is at. Every moment you walk in, he walks in. Every fear that you walk through, he is literally in that moment with you. Every anxious moment, he's literally there with you. You cannot escape it, even if you try really hard. But beloved, it's there for you that you might embrace it. The fullness of Christ's presence with you. This summer, we're going to start a series in the book of Exodus. That's our next stop. One of the reasons why you jump into the book of Exodus 
is because we need to believe in the presence of God in our lives. One of the realities you see in the book of Exodus is God's presence with his people over and over and over and over again. Beloved, we need to be built up. We need to be encouraged in that. 2 Corinthians, Paul points to our union with Christ. One has died for all, therefore all died. Paul concludes, because I died with Jesus, something's different. That brings us to our observation in verse 15. That because Jesus died, I died. Verse 15. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died for all. He died for all that. Those who live, he's pointing to a spiritual reality that those who live, that those who believe in his name, that those who receive salvation, that those who receive the benefits of his death yielding life, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Friends, we see as this passage progresses that Jesus' death makes you alive. It brings you to life. And it, and it brings you to a particular kind of life. What I want to argue for you is it moves you through a particular kind of death. And it brings you to a particular kind of life. That you don't get to define. You don't get to just decide Jesus died so that's taken care of. No, Jesus died so that all of it would be taken care of. And Jesus made us alive so I could be alive. No, Jesus made you alive in some very particular ways. This kind of life that Jesus brings you alive to seems to be one that is no longer centered on you. As in his dying, amongst other things, I'm not trying to make it solely this, but his dying that you join him in somehow involves you dying to yourself. To your self-centeredness. To your self-idolatry. To your selfish desires, to your me first mentality, to your I rule the world thought processes. It seems to be that Jesus' death forces that death of that kind of thinking in our lives to die. So that we might live No longer for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. His dying seems 
to free us from the prison of self-centeredness. It seems to free us from the trappings of self-worship. That we would see that by his death, we are moved from a self-centered obsession to a Christ-centered freedom. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but that we would live for him. So that having obtained salvation, Christ would become first. His kingdom would become first. His priorities would come first. His mission might come first. It's one of the reasons why Paul points to this in Colossians 1 when he says that in all things Christ might become preeminent. That literally in every part of our lives, Jesus would become the most important thing. Let's pause. Is anybody rocking that in reality right now? I don't see any hands. Me neither. Right? I mean, we have to be mindful of the gospel in this reality. That if you listen to what Paul has written so far, you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Which means here you're really selfish. And Jesus wants to teach you to die to yourself. And die to yourself. And die to yourself. And die to yourself. And die to your plans. And die to your identity. And die to your schemes and your plots. And your self-driven life. He wants that to all die as he progresses you. And beloved, as you blow it. And you will. Because it's not just me and Bob. We're reminded of the fact that Jesus' death on the cross pays for our sins. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we are to see that Christ in us is doing something. We are to see that Christ, who is always with us, is doing something with us. Oh, beloved, that ought to give you a tremendous sense of hope. You're not alone. You might feel alone. You're not. Wait for it. You're not apathetic. You might feel apathetic. You might be going through a season of apathy. But Christ is in you, the hope of glory. But Christ is doing something. He's awakening your soul. He's moving you from one degree of glory to the next. So if we take a hold of that, if we believe that, we want to pursue that, What does that look like? Paul gives us three changes and an outcome. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul says, in light of the fact that you are united with Christ, in light of the fact that Christ in you is working on you, he's maturing you, he's growing you, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's because Christ is at work in you, changing you into his image, moving you from self-focus to Christ-focus. One of the first changes you ought to see that he's working on in you and that he's going to continue to work on you is how you look at other people. How you look at your neighbors. How you look at your coworkers. How you look at the person sitting next to you in the pew, whether you're married to them or not. We see Christ changes our view of people that as we follow Christ, we might become more mature in this. That we would no longer see people according to the flesh. That is, as a believer in Christ, I can't look at people with the agency of me. That is, I can't look at them as how will they help me, how will they progress me, how will they benefit me. But this is one of the realities of why God has given us his word. You read it. Read the Gospels. Read them regularly. Watch how Jesus treats people. And you will not see Jesus treating people according to his benefit. You will not see Jesus using people. So that we might read those, that Christ might mature us. We might pray through through those scenarios and ask him to transform our lives. That's maturity. Beloved, we shouldn't miss that in the upper room, Jesus gives a new commandment. And it really escalates everything. Because when Jesus gives a new commandment, we can all think about the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And miss the fact of what a self-centered world that is. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in the other upper room. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. This is Jesus who in moments is going to go to the cross to pay a price for their sins. This is Jesus who called these men out of lives of world that gained pleasure and brought them into a a mission that was unfathomable that he equipped them and called them to participate in. Jesus, as I've loved you, we're to look at the Father and say, God, how have you loved me? That's how I love people. God, how do you, how have you loved me? That's how I should love my neighbor. 
who irritates me. God, you've, you've never grown impatient with me. God, you've never looked at me and thought, that dude is into some weird stuff. So why would I be judgmental about my neighbors? Maybe I should process that, God, you sacrificially gave of yourself to love me in a way that changed everything for me. Maybe I should love my neighbor better. That's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. And Jesus would say, yeah. And how am I to love... My coworkers. How am I to love my neighbors? How am I to love my family? How am I? You pick the category. And you take it to Jesus and you begin to pray. Because church, this is what you need to see. As I have loved you. It starts with you considering the love of Jesus. For the love of Christ compels us. It starts with you really considering what has Jesus done for me. That's the love I'm supposed to give. Again, church, I tell you, are you sufficient for that? Not at all. Is he sufficient for that? Each and every time. But we cannot forget, Jesus said, abide in me. We cannot forget we're supposed to abide in Jesus all the time. We gotta live in His strength. We gotta live in His power. We gotta live in His authority. We gotta live in our union with Him. But if you're gonna be called to do all kinds of wild things when you start choosing obedience, and we're gonna have to ask ourselves, can I do this on my own? Not once. Can I do this with Christ? Yes. Because Jesus moves us along from a selfish, self-centered, what can I get from you, love, from a selfish, what can you do for me, love, from a selfish, I just need it to be equal, love, which is the world's love at best, to a Christ-centered, I want to strive to love you, As Christ would love you. I want to strive to love you as if Christ were literally standing here loving you in this moment. Pam and I were shopping a couple months ago and there's a gentleman standing on the corner and he was clearly bothered. Probably intoxicated, probably had some mental issues. And I just sat and watched him for a while. And all I could think of was Jesus would walk up to that guy and hug him. Jesus would walk over there and heal him. And I'm bothered by him. Wretched man that I am, like, why does this bother me? Because I'm selfish. I'd love to tell you that story ended with me going over and hugging the guy. Because that's how it should have ended. That's how Christ would have ended that story. And man, hopefully someday I'll have a good story about me going and hugging a dude. Just in faithfulness. 
Just believing, man, Christ, you're enough for me to go hug that dude. I'm not telling all of you to go hug people. Just telling you that's what's in my heart. That, that we're to love as Christ has loved. That's what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. That sufficiency to love people that are unlovable. That sufficiency to do costly, sacrificial things. Things that don't come natural to any of us. And how does that work? Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Love, you probably know this verse. If there's a verse from 2 Corinthians that most of you could quote this would be it. But you actually have to place it in its context. You have to place it in this realm where Paul is writing to you that you would understand your union with Christ. You would understand your insufficiencies, that you would come to grips with all of these things. You'd feel this weight of, can I do this? 2 Corinthians 4 says, no, you can't. You're not sufficient, but he is. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, and in Christ, he has made you new. And I want to ask you, what do you believe about the new you? Because that changes everything. Because if in Christ you're a new you, what you believe about the new you determines the life you live. Because is the new you selfish? Shouldn't be. You're going to have to war against that. Is the new you totally self-centered? Shouldn't be. You're going to have to war against that. Is the new you built and equipped and sent to love people with the love of Christ? Oh, please say it louder. I just need some encouragement sometimes. That's actually what you were built for. That, that's what you were built for. That's what you were designed for. That's what the new you was built designed to be. So this isn't foreign. We just haven't believed it about ourselves. How do I know that's true? Well, scripture. Verse 18. All this Union with Christ, all of this, the sufficiency of Christ, all of this, the new you, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Is there a period there? No. He reconciled us to himself and so one thing, there's two things, there brought together, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciles us to himself. Then gives us the ministry of reconciliation. You come to Christ. You give your life to Christ. And Jesus gives you a ministry. It's not an option. You, You don't get to say, that's Pastor Ben's calling. 
You say, it's my calling. It belongs to me. Jesus gave me a ministry of reconciliation. That is, he explains it to you. In Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against us. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20. Therefore, in summary, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you've been watching the world news over the last months, you might be watching ambassadors going back and forth. Germany sent an ambassador to Russia. Poland sent an ambassador to Russia. United States pulled back, or, you know, like they're going everywhere. And what do they do? They bring the message that they've been given to represent the country, the authority, the power that they come from, to speak on behalf of the authority. Your ambassadors sent so that God might make his appeal through you. All of us. It's what you were wired to do. It's what the new you was built for. But because of Christ's death, because of his resurrection, because we've died with him, because we've been raised with him, because we're united with him, because he's with us and in us, because he's made us a new creation, Because of the love of Christ who loves us, we are compelled. We're held together by Christ to be sent out with a ministry of reconciliation. We're to be his ambassadors that God would use us to make his appeal so that we bring it full circle. So that when you're standing in your front yard cleaning out your flower beds and your neighbor stops by to borrow a tool, you walk into Starbucks, you take your family to Chili's, you're getting your kid's haircut. In every one of those moments, we're to remember that we're a new creation, purchased, redeemed, and compelled. We're an ambassador sent so that those who are far off might be reconciled. And do you know what our why is? We love because he first loved us. That's our why. Philippians 2, when Paul says, if you have any encouragement with Christ, any encouragement in Christ, we love because he loved us. I'm going to close us in praying Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 because it's just real fitting to close us in praying this. Gracious Father, we worship you. Father, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. 
that according to the riches of your glory, you might grant us, you might grant every single believing soul in this room that we might be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being. God, that your spirit would be at work in us and through us so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. Father, we'd understand who Christ is. We'd understand his deep and his rich love for us, that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, God, that by your mercy and your grace, by your wisdom, that you might give us the strength to comprehend as a body of saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know that the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge this love of Christ that we don't even have to comprehend this love of Christ we can't even fathom this love of Christ we can't explain that we'd know the fullness of the love of Jesus that we might be filled with all the fullness of God Father, you've called us to be your ambassadors so that we might love others just as you have loved us. Amen.